0: Well, this morning we will be continuing our series in the book of John, the Gospel according to John, the ninth chapter. Turn there with me in your Bibles. Uh, You can, if you have your own Bible, turn in there. If you don't own a Bible, follow along in one of these Bibles that we've provided for you. These blue ones at the end of the rows. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take this Bible as a gift from us. John chapter 9, we'll be reading the entirety of the chapter beginning in verse 1. So listen carefully, for this is God's word. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered them, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son. And that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, "For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to them, "Said to him, are we also blind?" Jesus said to them, "If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains." Well, for the better part of this last year, these 11 months that we've been meeting together, we've been walking through the book of John. And John has been telling us repeatedly through this narrative that he's trying to write for us, even in the 21st century. He's trying to show us who Jesus is. And so from the very first chapter, those very first verses, John is is eager to tell us That Jesus is the Christ. He's God. He came from God on a mission. So he wants to tell us who Jesus is. He wants to tell us what he came to earth to do. And because of that, what Jesus has the authority and the power to do. So through these first 12 chapters of John, John's going to show us all of these signs that Jesus did while he was on earth. To show us, what he has authority to do. But, John has been doing all of this very intentionally, very purposefully, and this is why. He wants to make sure that we respond to Jesus in the right way. He wants us to know who Jesus is, why he came to earth, what he's doing now, what he has authority to do, also, that we will respond to Jesus in the right way. And this morning, our text is doing that exact same thing. It's showing who Jesus is, what he came to earth to do, what he has authority to do, and also how we must respond to him. And so this morning, we're going to walk through the text, and I've got these headings for you that you can see in your bulletin Amazing Healing amazing unbelief, and amazing grace. And these will help us as we move through the text. Our narrative begins with Jesus and his disciples passing by a blind man. There are few details given about this encounter, such as the exact timing, the exact place of where this happened, but verse 1 gives us the most pertinent detail for our story. This man had been blind from birth. This detail adds all the impressiveness to what Jesus does, to his healing power. No person, no medicine, nothing has been able to heal this man that was born blind. But Jesus does. But this detail also sets up This question from the disciples in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? It's an interesting question. The disciples obviously were puzzled. They had a theological puzzle that they had to figure out. And they didn't know how to answer it. And so they asked Jesus, What caused this? Who caused this? Why did this happen? I have a friend who has been handicapped from birth. He has minimal usage of his legs. And so from the time that he's been able to walk, he's had to use crutches to get around. He's been handicapped from birth. Well, in my few years of knowing him, countless amounts of times he has shared with me about boys and girls that he's overheard asking their parents, what's wrong with him? Why can't he use his legs? And I, want, I think that helps us illustrate what's going on here. We want to know why. We're curious. Why, why is that not working how it's supposed to? He's supposed to be able to use his legs, but he can't. Why is this man born blind? That's not how it's supposed to be. In this case, the disciples wonder who ought to be blamed for the condition of this sorry fella. So they ask for Jesus' insight. Who sinned, they ask straightforwardly. And we hear in this question the disciples drawing a tight connection between physical handicaps or afflictions and sin. Now, it's not like they were off their first century rockers. Scripture does teach that physical afflictions or hardships can be due to sin. Uh, Hardships, suffering, sickness, death. We see all throughout the Scriptures, various moral causes can bring us to that hardship. And usually it's to one of these three causes. First, the sin of Adam, in whom all have fallen, and by nature are guilty before God. Secondly, Scripture teaches that physical afflictions can be traced to the sin of one's parents. Multiple times in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, it is said that God will visit the iniquity, the sin, of the fathers on the children to their third and fourth generation. For example, the second commandment in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But there also are a host of examples in the Old Testament where the sin of a parent brings trouble on the child. Uh, think of this famous one. Uh, David's son dies because David sinned with Bathsheba. It was a direct correlation. A third, Scripture teaches that physical afflictions can be traced to one's own personal sins. Deuteronomy 28 tells us all about that. Jeremiah 31, 30. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Or you could even think of uh, Jonah, for example. He disobeyed God. He ran away from Nineveh where God had commanded him to go. And what do we find? He's in the belly of a whale, a direct correlation with his sin, So we see all sorts of physical afflictions traced to one of these three causes throughout Scripture. But the Jews tended to exaggerate number two and number three. And so they traced each particular affliction to a particular sin. This was the case with Job's friends as they blamed his hardships on mistreatment of the poor or the widows and the fatherless. And here in John 9, the disciples assume the sorry condition of the blind man is due to the sin of his parents or to the sin of the man when he, was yet in the, when, his, when he was yet in his mother's womb. And so you can see how the disciples are maybe a little bit confused by this. How, if it was the man who was the sinner, how did he sin in his mother's womb? That's confusing, so you see how they can get to this question. Well, Jesus replies instructively to their question in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus tells us that not every particular affliction can be traced to a particular sin. That was the case with Job, and it's the case with this blind man. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, Jesus says. Secondly, Jesus replies instructively, because while the disciples are looking back in this man's life, who sinned way back when? Was it his parents? Was it this man? Jesus is actually forward-looking. He says, don't look back to who sinned. Look forward to what God will do. There is a purpose to this man's blindness. And namely, it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. Friends, we cannot link a particular affliction to a particular sin in every case. That's really important for us here at SCPC. Really important. Because as you know, as Dean just prayed, there are a host of diseases and physical hardships that folks in our congregation are dealing with today. All afflictions trace their roots to the sin of Adam, but not all afflictions should or can be traced to a particular sin in one's life. And so what Jesus tells the disciples then is that God doesn't hand out afflictions just because of a particular sin, as if he were Santa Claus handing out coal for that evil deed. But God does this, allows these things to happen for his own purposes, which might be totally unknown to us, though what we can know is that ultimately it serves the glory of God. Every physical affliction comes with the opportunity for God's glory to be manifest in a special way. In the healing of afflictions, we see the power of God. As we are sustained through our afflictions, over many years perhaps, we see the goodness of God. Even in the way that we handle our afflictions, we bear witness to the hope that we have to the glory of God. So I think again of my friend. Multiple times he shared with me about the difficulty of being handicapped, of how hard certain times of his life have been. Not being able to play on the soccer field like other kids. He's always been different. People always look at him and wonder what's happened. But I can tell you, as a friend, being his friend, the glory of God has shown through his afflictions as he has patiently endured with God's help over many years of his life. He's even used opportunities in his workplace to bear witness to the goodness of God As children have asked, Mom, what happened to him? And he's overheard them and he's testified to God's goodness and to his hope in the future of God's works being done, the resurrection of his body, a new body that he will enjoy. And that's a good reminder for us, isn't it? You don't have to be healed of your afflictions in order that the glory of God might be made manifest in you. Isn't that Hopeful for us when our bodies are not working as they should. Jesus continues in verse 4 with a pronoun that we cannot miss. We, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Whereas the disciples see the blind man and ask theologically speculative questions, Jesus sees the blind man and he has compassion on him. He stops to engage this blind man. Jesus was sent by God in order to do do the works of God. In order to do his will. We saw in John 6. In John 17, we'll see that Jesus was sent in order to glorify his father. And dear brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus you are called to do the same to do the works of God to do God's will to glorify your father in heaven and so Jesus says while it is day and what he means there is while we are alive while we can we must do the works of God now, how do we do that that's a hard calling that's a hard task well, many ways we can do that. But in light of this text, I'd like to suggest that we have a responsibility to love those with physical or mental handicaps. In my 26 years of life, not a lot of time, one thing I've learned is that the handicapped, the mentally handicapped, the physically handicapped, those folks might be the easiest for us to pass by. We can easily just pass by them in the hallway at school. We can easily just pass by them in the mall or whatever the case, in our church, perhaps. We can just pass by them. And so it might be true that they can be hard to love. But on the other hand, one thing I've learned is that perhaps the handicapped are the easiest to love of all the people that are needy in our world. Just spending time with the, hand, with the handicapped will not only bless them, it will bless you, I promise. And so let me suggest that spending quality time with the mentally or physically handicapped on a semi-regular basis might be the simplest and easiest and most effective way of loving the handicapped. That is one way that we can apply this text. We can talk about loving People all the day long. But night is coming for each of us, and so we need to get busy loving those who are needy. Well, verse 5 sets up the amazing healing that Jesus is about to perform. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And Jesus illustrates and proves his claim by bringing light and sight to the man's eyes for the first time. Isn't that awesome? for the first time in his whole life. Why Jesus makes mud and sends man to Siloam to heal the man's eyes when he could have simply spoken a word and healed him is unclear. We don't know exactly why Jesus did that. Uh, Over these 2,000 years since Jesus lived, many suppositions have been offered. But I want to suggest that rather the person is... The utmost importance. Jesus healed the man. He was the word made flesh and he heals this man. And by doing so, Jesus revealed not only his care for the body, not only his love for our physical bodies, but also something of his person. That Jesus has the power to heal, that he is capable of granting sight, that he is the one who is able to do the works of God. And that's quite astounding. It's Jesus who can heal. Well, quickly, after we see Jesus healing the blind man, we see a reaction, our first reaction to what Jesus has done. And verses 8 through 34 detail the various responses to this healing, with the most alarming response being the radical disbelief on the part of the Pharisees. I'm going to take you through this section very quickly. So follow along in your Bibles. This is a large chunk of our passage. Beginning in verse 15, we see that the Pharisees are going to moderate a sort of trial, a questioning of the healed man. They're seeking to make more sense of this miraculous healing. They don't understand it all. But fundamentally, they were seeking more evidence to dismiss Jesus and more evidence to condemn him. And so in verse 16, some Pharisees say, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The Pharisees, you'll remember, uh, were a party of the Jews. They were greatly concerned with uh, accurate interpretation of the law, of the Mosaic law specifically, and with the promoting of their own traditions. And so on many an occasion throughout the four gospels, we see Jesus encounter the Pharisees and Jesus rebuking them for an interpretation or a tradition that they've created that either goes beyond what scripture says or falls short of what scripture says. Jesus is trying to give us the right interpretation. And so according to Jewish tradition, this tradition that the Pharisees are following, kneading, as in like kneading bread, making bread and kneading it, was prohibited on the Sabbath, and the mud that Jesus made from the saliva and the dirt would have fallen into this category. So here's what the Pharisees think. This man is a Sabbath-breaker. He does not obey God's law. And so he is a sinner. And yet to some others, in verse 16, Jesus' signs suggest otherwise. They said, "How can a man who is a sinner do such signs?" And so there was a division among them. In verses 18 through 23, the Jewish religious leaders go to the man's parents, and they're hoping to gather more information about what had happened. But John tells us that his parents are not interested in getting involved out of fear of being excommunicated from the synagogue. They don't want to even suggest that they follow Christ or that they think that Jesus is the Christ. So again, the Jewish leaders bring the man back for questioning. They're still in a state of disbelief and trying to coax the man. They say to him in verse 24, give glory to God. Well, what this means is tell the truth. We know you're lying. We know this man is a sinner. And so just tell us the truth now. But ironically, and this is so great, John is Uh, Is showing us all the irony of every conversation that happens all throughout Jesus' ministry. Ironically, the man born blind is going to give glory to God by his testimony of faith and his worship. But the Pharisees want him to lie about what has actually happened to him. So they do not believe what has happened, they do not believe the man's testimony, they do not believe in Jesus. And so they ask more of the same questions in verse 26. And finally in verse 28, they just become hostile to the man. They revile him with his words. And then in verse 34, they wield their religious power and they kick him out of the synagogue. They excommunicate him. And so I bring you through this quickly with the hope that you'll see what is actually in the heart of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Darkness. Darkness. And darkness hates light. It hates truth. And so they reject Jesus, who is the light. And that's the point that Jesus is making at the end of the chapter in verses 39 through 41. The Pharisees are the ones who say, We know. We understand. We're the ones who keep the law. We actually see. We see in black and white. He's a Sabbath breaker if you do this. And if you do this, you're not a Sabbath breaker. They thought they had it all together, the correct interpretations. But in reality, Jesus says, the Pharisees are the blind ones. The light has come to them right in front of their face. And so they can see Jesus physically but they reject him. And it's an indication of radical unbelief. They see, but they do not see in the most important sense. They don't see Jesus for who he really is. They don't perceive that Jesus is from God and that he came to do the works of God, that he is God. And all of what he is doing is proving that fact. The Pharisees were... I guess you could say experts in their day. Because they knew what the Old Testament said. They knew all of these prophecies about what the Messiah was to be like and how he was going to come to earth and how he was going to save them. But really, they, they totally missed it. They totally missed it. Because as Nick read earlier from Isaiah, the Messiah was said to be one who would open the eyes of the blind. And so when this happens right in front of their very face and they have a testimony from a man who they knew was born blind. They don't believe it. They don't buy it. Their hearts are dark. And so they saw Jesus, but they did not truly see him because they did not believe in him. And this is in stark contrast to the blind man. At the beginning of the chapter, we saw the first interaction between Jesus and the blind man. At the end of the chapter, in verses 35 through 38, we see the second interaction. And it's really important that we read both of these together. So we read the first section. Let me go back and read these verses again, 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The first interaction is about physical sight. The man is blind, Jesus comes to him, he has compassion on him, he grants sight to the blind man. Jesus accomplishes something that, No one else, no medicine, nothing could do. And he does it without assistance, totally on his own accord. The second interaction is about spiritual sight and about faith. So Jesus asks in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? And so we're to read these together and take them together. Because what we are supposed to see is that both physical sight and spiritual sight are given by Jesus as a gift. He is able to give spiritual sight just as he gave physical sight. And more than that, we're to see that we can contribute nothing. We are utterly incapable of having faith or mustering up faith on our own. We cannot contribute anything. So Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, that is faith, is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God that no one should boast. The blind man recognizes this when he just says simply, I was blind, but now I see. He takes, he takes faith, not as something he did, but what Jesus gave to him. He comprehends that he is a recipient of amazing grace, we might say. Just like any of us who who were blind and now have been given spiritual sight. That is faith. I want to highlight another significant angle about these two interactions. We see that Jesus is concerned about the man's soul, not just the man's body. We spent significant time seeing how he was concerned about the man's body. He's concerned with more than the man's quality of life. He's concerned with the man's quality of eternal life. Dear Christians, I I encouraged us earlier that we must love the handicapped. And to that list we could add the poor, the social outcasts, the widows, the orphans. If we are becoming more like Christ, we will be more like Christ in this way. We will love these people. Absolutely, absolutely. But like Jesus, we must also prioritize one's spiritual needs. And so while it's good that we desire to to relieve physical needs, and we must do that, we must long even more for conversions. That must be our chief desire for spiritual sight. So you may not know this, but over the last 10 to 15 years within the church, there's been a significant Uh, this debate, discussion about what the mission of the church is. What is the mission of the church? What is the church to do? What is her primary task in the world? If you were to drive around Charlotte and you were to look at the signs of all these churches in Charlotte, you're going to see a huge spectrum of the way that people and churches would respond to that question. What is the church's primary task? Now, some are going to say that it's to lead social reform over injustice and other significant and important matters. Some say the primary task of the church is to transform the culture. We're to be here so that we can redeem the culture, they might say. And books and articles have been written on the issue. In many ways, it's a very technical discussion, so I'm not going to go into all the details. You can find uh, information out there. But I think what we want to say is that the mission of the church is the Great Commission. That is, the, our mission as the church is to make disciples of Jesus, people who will follow him. And so you'll actually realize that when the mission statement is read at the beginning of our services here at SEPC, what's the first thing that's said? Very important. To make followers of Jesus. That's the very first thing we say. Our mission here as this local expression of Jesus' body is to make disciples, to make followers of him. And that is what we're saying the mission of the entire church is. That's the priority of Jesus' ministry, we see. All throughout the Gospels, we see it here in John 9. Jesus calls this man to believe in him, to be his disciples. And it's not to say that we aren't to care for physical needs. But our goal, even in our care of anyone who is needy is that we would make them a disciple of Christ. So we would help them become a disciple of Christ. And so that doesn't mean that every time we're going to have our neighbors over for dinner, we have to, you know, give them this caveat, hey, before I can give you dessert, uh, can I open my Bible? I need to walk you through the Romans road. You have to become a disciple of Jesus before I give you this ice cream and cake. No, we don't have to do that. We always want to have in our minds that our goal in making relationships with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers is that they will come to believe in Jesus. And this is hard for me. It's hard for many of us. We feel uncomfortable having these sort of conversations, but we must not be ashamed to ask, do you believe in Jesus? It's a critical question. It's a critical answer. Well, So consider what Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels. Matthew 16, verse 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? And we might say, what would it profit a man if he was given physical sight, but he had no spiritual sight, if he did not have faith? What's going to profit a man a few years on this earth? Better quality of life, we'd say. That's about it, Sadly. And so, the mission of the church, the mission of us as members of the church, is to call sinners to faith and repentance. Because without faith, even if we know the scriptures really well, like the Pharisees, without faith, we are lost for eternity. If the church does not make disciples, who will? Who will? That's what Jesus is calling us to do. And so, our task as the church this is very simply put we need to love the needy, both their physical needs and their spiritual needs. We must not divorce the two. And we can do both at the same time. So, I want you to notice how the man responds to Jesus' question in verse 38. Jesus asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, Lord, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The blind man understands that Jesus is more than a prophet. He understands that he is more than a skilled doctor. He understands that Jesus is God, that he is Lord. And so he professes faith. And don't miss the second part. And he worshipped him. Jesus' miracle was not just about the miracle itself, but it was to point to his identity, who he was, who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He has power because he is God and he is the light of the world. Jesus brings light and faith to the eyes of the man's heart so that he would believe and he would trust and he would rest in Jesus and so that he would worship him. The blind man demonstrates the authenticity of his faith, that he has become a true disciple. Worship is to bow at another's feet. It is to give glory to another. And Jesus receives it from the blind man because the blind man has saving faith. So you might wonder, of all the stories that could be told about Jesus, why is this one included here? Why is it included? I want to bring you briefly to the end of our chapter, or the end of our book, rather, to John 20. You can turn there with me real quick. John 20, verse 30 and 31. This here is John's purpose statement. The whole whole reason the book of John exists. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, John says. But these are written, these ones that I have included are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John does not say, though he could have. These are written so that you'd be impressed with Jesus. These are written so that you would have hope in a new body in the life to come, though he could have. Now, he wrote this, he included this here, so that you would respond like the blind man and not like the Pharisees. The light has come, you must believe in him. You must worship him. And if you do so, you will have life. All throughout the book of John, John makes a connection between light and life. If you have the light, then you have life. And eternal life is found in Jesus. So I want to conclude by asking you a few questions. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe these things that have been written? Or might you be spiritually blind? Might you be? Do you know Jesus? Do you know who he is, what he came to do, what his purpose was, how you're to respond to him? Have you recognized your need of him? You see, all of us are born in spiritual blindness. Every last one of us. And we all need Jesus to give us light for the eyes of our heart. Have you received God's gift of light and life by faith? All because of God's grace. Do you worship Him as your Lord and your Savior? Are you walking in the light even now? Do you have assurance? By God's grace of your salvation. If you don't know, or if you know for sure that you don't know Jesus and that you don't believe in Him, then let me exhort you. Because it is daytime right now, and night is coming for each one of us. Said it in verse 4 it's coming. There will be a time when it is too late for you to put your faith in Jesus. That might be tomorrow. And, and boys and girls, it's hard to think. You might not be here tomorrow. But it's possible. Today is the day while you have the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. Your spiritual blindness will be cast out forever forever. 2 Corinthians says, today is the day of salvation. Today you may have assurance of eternal life. Tomorrow's not promised to you. And so what you need to do is you need to repent. And you need to believe that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is the Christ, the son of God. So that you might have life, light, and so that your sight will be forever on Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We have never seen Jesus physically, but your word guides us to believe in him spiritually. And to see him with the eyes of our hearts so that we might have eternal life, light forever. And Revelation says that there will be no sun in the new heavens and the new earth because Jesus himself is the light and we shall need no other light. And for us as Christians who are in this world of darkness and amongst people who are rejecting Jesus and have radical unbelief and do not believe even what we have to say to them we look forward to that day when we shall see you face to face with not just the eyes of our heart but the eyes of our body what a glorious day that will be we ask as we leave this place that you would guide us in truth and in light this week all for your glory